beginning to feel the effects of those uh, great mattresses, the perfect sleepers that you're sleeping on? Well, we're halfway through. We've had four of our messages, and uh, we've got four more to go between now and tomorrow. Um, and um, I just wanted to kind of orient us to where uh, I'm, I'm going, where we're going. We've been talking about the unity of the church. I've tried to lay before you the, the scriptural mandate and some descriptions of what that unity involves and to challenge us to really see the way in which we fail to promote the unity. Uh, but I know that we come to a meeting like this. There are officers here. There are uh, members of the church, some brand new to the OPC perhaps, some that have been around for a long time. And so when we talk about unity, you may have different ideas of where you think that unity needs to manifest itself or how. And in these next messages, I'm going to be moving it down more and more to where we live day by day in our local congregations, uh, and then tomorrow to talk particularly about the kind of personal conflict resolution and reconciliation that we need to uh, promote uh, just so that we keep all of the individual members together. I mean, it's, it's one thing to, to talk about our elders giving us examples and leading us in that, um, and, uh, and thinking about how we deal with theological controversy, but um, you may be upset with uh, you know, Mrs. Smith or, uh, or uh, one of the deacons in your congregation, and it's got nothing to do with theology. You know? They neglected you, or they upset you, or they hurt your feelings or something. So we're kind of moving in that direction. As the schedule has fallen out, um, obviously there hasn't been time, I haven't allowed time uh, for questions or comments, or interaction, and I, I really think there's a need for that. Uh, so before we move into this next talk on um, all one body, we, living as one is more than a song, uh, I'm going to allow a little bit of time for some questions here. Um, I probably, they said there were, there were you know, eight slots for speaking, and I just made eight messages, and I probably should have made seven and then we could have devoted the last session to Q&A, but then you wouldn't have had any questions anyway, and I would have wasted the opportunity for another talk. That's, uh, that's the way one of Murphy's ecclesiastical laws works out. You know, if you, if you leave time for questions, there aren't any questions, and if you don't, there are a lot of questions. So um, a few of you have asked about whether there will be any uh, opportunity for questions, so this will at least be it. And then what I'll have to do is just try to compress, as painful as that is, you know, it's not the message that gets compressed. It's the speaker that gets squeezed. So, uh, but we'll, we'll try to, to allow some time, and then I'll try and um, get at least some of the things that I was going to say today are a little bit uh, uh, reminders or, or repeats of things that I've said already, so I'll try to skip over some of that and, and still get through. So here's how we're going to do it. We've got a handheld mic that will help everybody hear you, and John is the chairman of the mic. And then I'm going to stand over under one of these uh, speakers to answer the question or just to sit there with a smile on my face if you have a speech to make um, so that we can get the uh, answer or the speech on the recording, which is only going through my mic. So, um, so I'll go stand over there, and then if you have a question, raise your hand, and I'll um, acknowledge you and then send the chairman of the mic uh, to uh, to see you. So let me get repositioned here.
Huh? Right here? Okay, good. All right. Questions, comments, concerns? Way in the back. And if I don't know your names, I can't read your name tags from this far, and I can't see some of you because you're backlit. I just got here late last night. Could you go over everything you've covered? <laughs> <laughs> That's easy. No. <laughs> okay, any non-cheeky questions? <laughs> Yeah, Dave. You're right that we're not all Orthodox Presbyterians here. And one question that I was asked um, in my capping sometime is, uh, what is uh, theonomy? And this is an honest uh, question from a brother who is here um, because of your messages on unity. Hmm. And uh, I wrote down a comment, theonomists getting moved to the fringes of the church, which is something I don't have any desire to see happen in the life of our presbytery or denomination. And, but I thought it would be good for you to give a brief pastoral reply. What is theonomy for those of us who don't know or may have been uh, not fairly representing that? Yeah, okay, and a, and a short answer too, right? Um, well, I guess the, the term theonomy means God's law, simply. And it was a uh, discussion that arose in the early 70s, I suppose, uh, largely as a result, well, it was around not under that title, more under the idea of Christian Reconstructionism back into the early 60s with the ministry of R.J. Rushdoony and some others associated with uh, him. Uh, my friend, uh, brother Greg Bonson, who was a classmate at Westminster while I was there from 1970 to 73, produced as a result of... I'm hearing some buzzing. Is that, should I move over here a little bit? Um, uh, Produced, uh, it was partially his master's thesis at Westminster, which then became a book entitled Theonomy and Christian Ethics. And so that name, out of that context, kind of got attached to this idea or this movement. Um, basically, in a nutshell, Greg's thesis was that the law of God, as it's revealed in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is the abiding um, standard for righteousness in every a dimension of a Christian's life, and he tended to emphasize particularly some of the um, political and social dimensions of that. Now, when he wrote that book, he thought he was just restating and then emphasizing what was the Reformed position on, um, on uh, ethics as opposed to, say, a dispensationalism, which just tends to throw the Old Testament out lock, stock, and barrel. Uh, found out that that wasn't so much the case, and, um, and then the controversy went on from there, and other books were written, and there were discussions in presbyteries and so forth. Um, I suppose theonomy in its really distinctive sense would be the question of whether the Old Testament judicial laws or civil laws still have... Um, relevance in the New Covenant age to the civil magistrate. Uh, our confession says that they have expired with the state of Israel except in as much as the general equity 
uh, continues to, and then of course that's a lot of discussion about what is that general equity and how do we discover it and how do we apply it. Um, where it got ugly in the church was that, um, and for various reasons I suppose, there were a lot of people, I believe, and this is just my opinion so others can correct it, who got upset because of caricatures. I mean, what the, the, the charge that I had leveled at me and that I heard, and I know Greg had the same experience, was that this is legalism. That somehow believing that God's law has an abiding ethical significance bleeds over into thinking that you're somehow justified before God on the basis of your law keeping. Well, you know, Greg wrote in every book that that was not true. And he didn't deny that there were dispensational changes from Old Covenant to New Covenant in terms of how the law functions and uh, so forth. It's, you know, it's hard to encapsulate an 800-page book in a, in a brief answer. But anyway, that's, that's what it was about. Uh, I think, particularly in this presbytery, there were a lot of personal issues that got into the mix because I was in Northern California at the presbytery at first, and there were some theonomists and there were some non-theonomists. But the, uh, the way that division in the Northern California presbytery was handled was there, there really wasn't any nastiness or, or, I mean, there were some sharp disagreements, but um, it, it wasn't as ugly a thing up there as it was, I, I believe, down here in this presbytery, and, and, uh, and maybe not as big a deal either. We had, our presbytery up there had a, a one-day conference where we had people from either side present papers and interact with one another, and uh, once everybody sort of understood what the issues were, then things sort of calmed down. It didn't necessarily change anybody's mind, but there was a lot of mutual understanding. We saw where the disagreements were, and we were able at least to dispel some of these more frightening accusations that somehow this was a compromise uh, of the very heart of the gospel. Um, and so, anyway, I don't know if that's... If you want more than that, I'd be happy to, to uh, try and give you more in private, or I can give you a bibliography and you can read. I will give... This, this probably wouldn't be easy to access unless your church libraries have a, um, uh, 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 an archive of the New Horizons. I don't remember what year it came out, but New Horizons, uh, several years back, did an issue, basically, what is theonomy, and Greg wrote... I think, a brief and succinct summary of what he was teaching, at least. Now, there again, there were theonomists of all kinds of opinions, and some were really whacked out on way on the fringe of things. It's sort of like having to defend every Calvinist on the planet, you know. It's sort of, a, you know, there's some Calvinists who say things that we might not be all that excited about. And then I wrote a little uh, article in that uh, New Horizons about at least my perception of how this controversy and some of the effects of it had worked out in the church and so forth. So anyway, if you flip through old New Horizons, it's got a, it's got a cover, you know, it either says what is theonomy or theonomy, something or other. You, you remember, some of you remember that issue? Does anybody have any idea when that came out? I mean, obviously it was when Greg was still alive, so I, I want to say it was in the early 90s, but I don't know exactly when. Okay, another question or comment or observation or whatever. Don? This is uh, going back to uh, Eden and uh, about the children. Mm -hmm. uh, some of us adults have, have trouble uh, understanding the messages of the kids. We have this uh, little jar with uh, Porky. Outer space Porky, right. yes. Uh -huh. And uh, 
Uh, you made the point that uh, uh, by nature we're, we're all in Adam, like Porky's in that jar, and we're also in Christ. Uh, and my question is, uh, are, are you telling the children, are you telling us, telling us that, uh, that we're in one or the other, or in both, uh, in all three in the church? Is there a transition from uh, being in Adam and in Christ, or is this you're making more of your illustration than you intended? Yeah, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to have to exegete the uh, the object lesson too too strongly. But yeah, we are all we are all by nature in Adam, and then those who are part of the people of God, are in Christ as well. And one of the problems that we have in, in understanding this and applying it to children or anybody else is there, there is the Godward dimension of that. The elect are in Christ from before the foundation of the world. Um, and we are... Um, but then the, the confession talks about us being united with Christ sort of existentially, experientially in our effectual calling. So there is a transition from wrath to grace, we move from solely in Adam to being also in Christ. And, um, and so our perception of that, I mean, at least as I understand our standards and the Scripture, uh, we're saying that those who are part of the body of Christ are holy in Christ. Our children ought to be baptized because they're holy in Christ. But then they need to live the life that is consistent with that. And I did say when I said that we're in the church, I don't mean in the church in the same sense as the other two. That's where the analogy breaks down. So, yeah, we, if, we, if we do not come into a personal relationship with Christ and become part of his people, then we are only in Adam and we are lost in Adam. So, but where that transition comes, when regeneration takes place, it could take place before we're born, after we're born when we're five or when we're 15 or something. Uh, and, but we can't discern either election or regeneration directly. So I think God has given us the covenantal uh, identification marks that help us know how to treat one another, whether as adults or as children. I'm not sure if that gets to, to the heart of your question. You can certainly sharpen it up a little bit, but I wouldn't want to press those analogies so very far. Um, Yes. Yeah, hold the mic up real close to your. Uh, this is a comment that I hope uh, you will respond to. So, it is, if, if it was a question, I'm greatly appreciative of the fact of the extent to which Roger has opened himself, and to some extent made himself an example of uh, getting to see himself. Uh, way maybe he should have a long time ago. First of all, I don't want him to stand up there alone in that respect. Uh, uh, certainly I should live. I will not give you any autobiographical sketch. Those of you who have been around have seen it. It wasn't very pretty, so I. And, uh, uh, but the thing I wanted to mention and see you comment on, I went to a uh, technology transfer uh, conference one time. In fact, I headed it. And 
fellow gave an illustration that I never forgot. He said, did you ever try to push a knot, through, a rope through a knot hole? He says, you can, uh, so assuming the knot hole is big enough, you can make a little progress. But he says, uh, you don't make much because then the rope starts to pile up on the other side of the knot hole and everything stops. And he says, you know, it's the thing that's really amazing what happens when somebody starts to pull on that rope on the other side of the fence. And that, are you going to say something about to encourage and instruct and exhort us that in the face of what you've done and uh, uh, being so honest and open and calling your attention to you as one of our leaders uh, have come to see where you've been part of the problem at certain points and now you want to be more part of the solution? Uh, are going to, you going to give us some practical nudges or perhaps even shoves to get on that? <laughs> Yeah, I did have um, I did have a few suggestions, uh, but after uh, we just ran out of time yesterday, and I, I thought maybe I'd try to incorporate them at the end of one of these uh, later messages, where I have some just some sort of suggestions, observations about how we can promote more uh, unity in the regional church. So I'll, I'll try to revisit that and make. I don't have any great. Um, earth-shaking insights on that, but I think at least, again, growing out of my own experience, I, I think there are some things that we can do to, to, to help remedy that situation, so we'll, we'll try. Now, there's a hand in the back. Sorry, I don't know your name, sir. Um, Jerry, okay. On the first day of the kind of historical background of diversity and the human condition and how we deal with that. I kind of had a two questions or two two part question, and uh, one was like the part A and part B would be how you deal with it. Is um, I think did you make a kind of an illusion? And you've heard of this like kind of multiculturalism where you can't say that one culture and then apply it to the church. You might have said you know you can't say this theology is better than the other. One culture is better than the other, and it seemed like, I thought that's what I heard you say, that we, keep, you know, we shouldn't do that, or we, we don't say, well, this you know, way, or this culture is like going to be better than the other, and then I'll ask the second part of my application. Okay. Uh, no, I, when I was referring to cultural diversity or, or multi, and I, I thought about not using that term, just because that, the way our culture uses that, I, or our society uses that term multiculturalism, it, it carries with it the idea of cultural relativity. My point was that there's all this diversity, but then I went on to explain that cultures and societies are the outworking of religious worldviews. <clears throat> and so they're not all equal. Uh, but, but it does, and so I do believe that the gospel will transform cultures, it will transform societies, but it may not make every society, therefore, that is sanctified exactly like every other society or every other culture. So, yeah, I don't believe that uh, all cultures are equal. And, uh, you know, even though there's certainly a, a respect that we ought to have going in, um, we believe that if people work out the implications of the gospel in their life, it's going to transform all of their institutions and their behavior in every area of life over time. And I think 
in some ways, Western European society does reflect that Christian influence, and in other ways, we have just assumed certain things were Christian that may or may not really be biblical. So, so I, I didn't mean to imply the relativism, and if that went by too fast, or if I didn't emphasize that clearly enough, uh, I, I should have. Stone Age primitive people in Arian and in 1976, the first PhD came out of Arian Jaira and graduated with a PhD here you know, from the seminary in the United States. So obviously, you know, there was some, but I think what I got me thinking about was on the other side, now, obviously there's got to be a difference between the culture that was still throwing spears and now they've got PhDs mm-hmm. versus, you know, having something to offer society. But, uh, on the other side, what is our attitude? And so it kind of made me think, but in the same way like we talked about yesterday, if we have different views in the church that, that, we, that aren't like major doctrinal things, like what hill we're going to fight on, like, is it really important? That's what I heard you saying, that like, we're really going to fight this battle where, you know, there are other things that might be more important to, to deal with. So in that same vein, I guess my question is, maybe you think, you know, we shouldn't be smug or think, in a sense, you know, cultures are different, and maybe the, obviously the gospel brought a lot more to the table, I think, than any other culture, but that's, that's another story. <laughs> so how do we do that without our ego or our, kind of what we were talking about yesterday, kind of, well, we don't think we're better than anybody else, or we don't, you know, as we deal with these other cultures that are coming in, especially here, like in Southern California, you've got people from all over coming to church, and so what's our attitude going to be? So in a way, you, you touched on something else by, by saying that. I just wanted to you know, ask you that question too as far as how we do deal with the different cultures and how we, you know, we view ourselves and our attitude like, towards other people. Yeah. Well, and I guess we just need to follow you know, you know, Paul's, Paul's rule of thumb and his behavior was to try to become all things to all men that he might by any means save some. And, uh, and so if, if and I think we need to be real suspect of our kind of American um, and modern American technologically uh, brilliant uh, cultural imperialism. Um, I'm not real encouraged by some of the attitudes that I see by our society to others who are here among us. I mentioned, uh, I think, I don't know if I mentioned in one of the talks, but we have a Lao congregation that meets with us. And just to see the way, you know, Americans and sometimes even multi-ethnic Americans treat other ethnic groups and what, how much they're willing to reach out and get involved and so forth. It's, you know, we've got a long way to go in that. I think our missionaries are great example, our foreign missionaries are great examples of the willingness to really lay down everything that can be laid down uh, maintaining conscience before the Word of God in order to build bridges and to open doors to the people that they're trying to reach. And so, um, you know, it's... Uh, but there's no kind of one... That's the rule of thumb, all things to all men, but, but there's always questions about what kind of tolerance or respect or acceptance do compromise the Gospel and which ones do not. But at least we ought to be reaching out as much as possible. Um, that didn't sound like a very good answer to me, did it? 
Okay, any other questions or comments? Yes. Right here. Uh, John, sorry, Mrs. Churchill. Hold it up kind of close. Elizabeth Elliot has a really good little book, and I think it's even concerning Christian liberty. But she was talking about the very issue hmm. when she lived among the Indians after her husband's death. No, no, that's me, not you. Death. Um, and it talks about what is, what is sin, what is not, what's cultural, and just all the little things that went on in her life. When hmm. She was living in that tribe and all the assumptions that she had of what a savage is and how it just was quite earth-shaking to her. That's a good one, I think, for us white Americans to read and realize that some of our conceptions of what sin was biblical may be not exactly accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes, uh, do, you, do you have a title for that? Do you remember what the no, book is I called? I can find out. I, okay. I don't remember the title, I'm sorry. It's just no. a little book, and I believe the title is maybe something to do with Christian liberty or something like that. Hmm. Okay. Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot is the, okay. Very good book. Anybody else? Yeah, Glenn. You mentioned that you're going to um, talk about interpersonal relationships, but I'm wondering also about the differences between unity in the church and then unity between between churches. Um, are you going to talk a little bit about? I mean, that? between between congregations or denominations? denominations? Yeah, not a lot on that particular topic. Um, Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Anything else? Okay, thank you. Now remind me again, we're 10.30, okay. Uh, turn to 1 Corinthians 12, if you would. 1 Corinthians 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same Lord who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the gift manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. 
For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? Uh, where, um, excuse me, I lost the line. Where would the sense of hear? Where would be the sense of hearing? Yeah, I thought that didn't sound right. If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think honor, less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our, unrepresent, uh, our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving great honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that he, the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administering, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to continue to guide our thinking by your word. And by your spirit, make us uh, pliable to receive the molding and the shaping of our minds and of our lives. We pray that we will bring you glory as we fulfill our function within the body of Christ. And uh, we pray that the things that Paul describes here and things that are expressed elsewhere in the scriptures might really um, be formative for the way we see ourselves and one another and the way we function together as members of the body. And we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, you've probably all had a severe toothache at some point or other in your life, and it just makes you hurt all over, or a badly sprained ankle, or a knee, or a hip. Uh, and it just seems like that pain radiates uh, all over the place. And so when Paul writes in verse 26 of this chapter, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it, we can kind of say, oh yeah, uh, I, I get what that object lesson, what that metaphor is all about. On the other hand, um, Paul writes, if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. There is this interconnectedness among us as members of 
the body of Christ that is similar to the parts of our body, the members of our physical bodies, and how they relate to one another. Uh, And I want us to think a little bit in the time that we have uh, left this morning about what this metaphor, as Paul unpacks it and explains it to us, uh, really um, uh, requires of us and what God promises to do in us and through us in our relationship to one another. Uh, Paul says in this chapter that um, we need to demonstrate our love to each other in practical service. And if we fail to do that, we are in fact dividing the body even if we don't affect a split in the body. Each of you as members of the local church must function as God intended in order to manifest the unity of the body of Christ. I said already a couple of times, and I think we understand it well by now, that the unity of the body is not man-made. It has been established by God Himself as a manifestation of His own nature. And that unity here in this context manifests itself in a functioning complementary diversity. A functioning complementary diversity. That's the way the unity of the body comes to expression. There in verses 4 and following, Paul talks about um, different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. Different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Different kinds of working, but the same God who works all of them in all men. That unity through functioning diversity. If we were Germans, we could make that all one noun. You know, that would be nice. Uh, we have to hyphenate it. Unity through functioning diversity. But I want you to think of it as, as one term, one concept, one idea. is a reflection of the triune Godhead. And so when Paul lays this out, he identifies the same Spirit, obviously a reference to the Holy Spirit, the same Lord, which is Paul's designation for the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and the same God, uh, the Father. And so as the Trinity has its working, the three in one, so also there is this unity in the various diverse workings of the gifted people who make up the body of Christ. In order for the church to show forth the glory of God as it should, He has sovereignly equipped the church with gifts and, um, and with service and with working. Again, Paul varies the terminology. Gifts remind us that these are the gracious bestowals of the Spirit. They are not things that we bring to the table, that we contribute to the life of the body, but that God has first given to us so that we might then use them for the benefit of the whole. Or he uses the term service uh, to call to mind a priestly kind of service offered in praise to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then a working, uh, an expression of the power of the Father in action, working in us and through us for the good of the whole body. That body member metaphor that Paul uses throughout this passage reminds us that each member of the local church has been united in one body through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 12, the body is a unit though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they they form one body. 
so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. The giving of the one Spirit to the church, that baptism of the Spirit which took place historically on the day of Pentecost, as well as our drinking of the Spirit, which I would take to be a reference to regeneration or, or that subjective participation in the life of the Spirit that each one of us individually experiences, uh, is the spiritual reality behind what it means to join the church. You know, oftentimes we think of joining the church as primarily a social activity. And I don't mean that as a, as a trivial uh, kind of social thing in the sense that people would say, well, that church is nothing more than a social club. But I, I, I'm thinking of it in terms of the fact that we, we view it on a horizontal level. We are connecting with the body, and, and uh, in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, we go through membership classes, we meet with the session, we take vows and so forth. But, but behind that, or, or in the midst of that, is the spiritual reality of being connected now to the life and the community of the Spirit. That same body that was baptized with the Spirit all those uh, many centuries ago when the Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, and then each one of us drinks of that living water uh, as John describes, or Jesus describes it in John, uh, as we uh, participate and partake of that Spirit. So possessing the Spirit and partaking of His saving blessings, that's what it means to become a part of the church, to be joined with the people of God. Now, in verses 8-11, through 11, Paul many, mentions several specific gifts. He itemizes them. And, of course, this is where a lot of the interest in this chapter arises, and there's lots of discussion and books written and so forth. I don't want to <clears throat> concentrate here on the nature of the gifts, though that is an important question, but rather the purpose for which they are given by God. And that's stated in verse 7. To each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. The diversity serves the unity. The variety serves the common good. The gifts are present in the members of the church. Now again, we can think about this chapter because it talks about the church. We can think about it uh, kind of in abstract terms, in idealized terms, but I challenge you to think about this in terms of the local body of which you are members, wherever that might be. The gifts are present in the members of the local body, and I'll develop that um, in a moment. <clears throat> and the gifts, therefore, must be exercised in the local body. The contemporary emphasis on discovering your spiritual gift, I think, can often lose sight of this one purpose in the midst of arguing over or discussing or trying to discover what the diversity is all about. And then, of course, in our circles, we uh, also uh, want to discuss the continuance or non-continuance of certain gifts that, uh, that Paul uh, mentions here. But... It's, it's helpful for us to kind of cut to the chase and think, now, what, what, why does God give these gifts? What is the purpose? Paul's point is that the gifts will manifest themselves in their use. Each of you, as a member of the local church, is called to service 
toward every other member in your local congregation because you are one body and there is a common good for the whole that needs to be served by each individual gifted member. Paul emphasizes that the distribution of these gifts in the church um, by means of the people mixture that he brings to each congregation is the result of God's sovereign selection. Verse 11, all these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He gives them to each one as He determines. So uh, just like a cook, perhaps, who's going to uh, make uh, some recipe, is going to select just the flavors and the ingredients that they want to make that uh, just exactly the way they want it to be, but then when they make something else, they're going to make a different mixture. So the Sovereign Lord, when He puts one congregation together, brings the people mixed there that He wants for the purposes that He wisely has in mind. But then another church, it might be a different mix because of a different circumstance. God is behind these things. You know, we sometimes wonder, why do the people who end up in our churches come to our churches? I mean, if you were going to write the scenario, if you were going to make the profile for what the members of our church ought to be like, it would often be very different. Uh, years ago, this wasn't the local church, but it was our Christian school. We went through a, a development seminar that said, among other things, you know, you have to decide what kind of student is your target student. And so you think about your purposes and your theological stand, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and you kind of build this profile of the student, but then God keeps bringing you people that don't fit the profile. So what do you do? Okay, well, you can't come here because you don't match what we've planned. Well, certainly, at least in the church, those apparently unplanned connections between the people who come into our congregations are the result of the sovereign determination of God the Holy Spirit. So that you don't miss this very important point, Paul repeats it in verses 24b and following. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. God has combined the members of the body. So however that works out providentially, whatever drew you to uh, your local congregation, whether... I know this doesn't happen very much, but maybe it was your neighborhood church. You just lived down the street. So you walked down the street one day and you visited a worship service and you stuck. Uh, or as Alan was saying yesterday, you know, we drive a long way to churches. So maybe it's the theology or maybe it's the denomination that you go after and you'll drive by 57 churches to get to that one. Um, or whatever else it might be that brings the people together. That's the outworking of this sovereign... Um, gathering together in local congregations as God wills. Now, Paul is not, as I said, describing ideals and abstractions. These are real flesh-and-blood congregations uh, of those who have responded to the Gospel call. Each local congregation is assembled by Christ through the preaching of the Gospel. Uh, and people come because they repent of their sins, they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they begin to assemble together of, with others of like precious faith. God adds each member to the local congregation, which will provide for the ministry of every other 
member of that particular congregation for the common good of the whole. And if every member functions as he or she should, then all of the gifts that are necessary for the building up of that particular congregation will be functioning and will serve that common good. They'll be manifest for the blessing of the whole congregation. But on the other hand, if any member fails to function, then the whole body will hurt. The whole body will um, be harmed. And sometimes a whole body begins to develop certain kinds of more or less permanent deformities that reflect the failure of members to uh, live out or act out in terms of the gifts that God has given them. And I mentioned yesterday, of course, that Christ has appointed pastors and elders to teach and equip and lead the members of the local church in their service to the whole body. So what are we doing when we join a church? What are we up to? Whether this is our conscious intention. Uh, It's more than simply making a commitment to worship and serve Christ in the abstract, although it is that. But it entails that we... We have local churches, and here's one of those problems where this idea of the the universal, well, the the invisible church that is universal, and people in our day and age in America, at least, who think that that's where their membership is, so I can go to this church this Sunday and that church that Sunday and watch it on TV the next Sunday and and go to the mountains and uh, have a Rocky Mountain high on uh, on the alternate, and and then they just bounce around. They're failing to understand that in order for us to do what being church members requires, we have to be connected. I mean, we can say we love God's people everywhere, but what makes that different from saying be warmed and be filled? Which John and and James both say is pretty much useless. If you're going to love one another in the biblical sense, you have to be close to a group of people where that is practically Possible. And so we have to say that although we might love all our brothers and sisters in Christ, loving Christians around the world is much more of an attitude of heart than it is the tangible realities of the kind of love that Christ wants to work in our midst. So what we're doing when we join the church is we're making a promise to worship God with a particular congregation of fellow worshipers. And we are making a commitment to serve God by serving a particular group of individuals. To serve them, to love them, to pray for them, to be members of one another with them. And then we have to keep that promise. We have to do what we promise. I mean, I like our membership vows. I think they're great. But I I really do think that we need... And, and probably um, different churches do more or less explaining of this when sessions are talking with prospective members, but we really do need to draw out the implications, particularly of that fourth membership vow. It concentrates on being submissive to the leaders of the church if you become delinquent in doctrine or life. But it really doesn't talk about um, uh, some of these kinds of things where we're, we're, we're making a commitment Now, maybe we just figure, well, you wouldn't join a church and not worship there. And yet we've all experienced people who join churches and then they they become very spotty in in their worship. Or they don't participate in the functioning life of the body as we would like them. And, And we don't necessarily discipline everyone for those things, but we certainly need to encourage people to keep that promise. So, why should I go to church? 
Why should I participate in the fellowship? This chapter gives us the answers to those kinds of questions. And, of course, it was also govern the question why or when or under what circumstances may I leave the fellowship of a local congregation. Now, Paul gives two reasons here why, um, how, or two uh, explanations of why members sinfully divide the body of Christ, and we'll touch on that quickly before we, we close up this session. By, um, by either failing to function, uh, or by failing to function as gifted servants to one another. Paul expresses his burden for the Corinthians pointedly in verse 25. There should be no division in the body. Its parts should have equal concern for each other. And I'd like you to think about those as the uh, kind of two ideas in tension, the opposite ends of a spectrum. Concern, which is a positive, forward-moving thing, and division. In the same way, uh, take another example. You know, when Paul talks about the thief, he says that we should not steal, but we should labor so that we can give. And so generous giving out of our own productivity is on one end, the opposite end, from being a thief. You don't cease to be a thief until you become a productive giver. Just not stealing, like Jay Adams says, that just means you're a thief between jobs, between heists. But if you're a thief, you not only have to stop. So now think about it in terms of division. We would say, well, when there's a church split, we've got a division. But Paul says to the degree that you are not actively, practically working out this concern for one another, then you are dividing or creating the the fissures that will divide the body of Christ. And so we can't think of our responsibility simply in terms of not being something negative, like disruptive, uh, being a factious person, criticizing the leadership, spreading gossip, and so on. All of those things are wrong too. But if we are not aggressively, positively acting out of this concern for the common good, then we're on the road uh, to that kind of division. Um, and think again of uh, just another example of that kind of contrast where Jesus, you know, he, he, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, in talking about not murdering, he ultimately gets around to the point of if you're at odds with your brother, you need to take care of that. We'll talk about this tomorrow, God willing. You need to take care of that because not being reconciled with one another is of a piece with murder. Although you might say, well, I didn't hit him even, and let alone kill him, so everything's all right. But if you're not aggressively pursuing reconciliation on an ongoing basis, then you're really sowing the seeds which could easily, in the providence of God, become something much more serious. So, so we need to see then that not only should there be no division in the body, but that the antidote to division is concern for each other. So, how does division begin to manifest itself in the local church? And often, as I say, it, it's, uh, it's beginning to show long before a split uh, begins to show on the, on the surface. You think about all of those houses that uh, went down off the cliff uh, uh, in Laguna Beach, uh, in Laguna, 
couple of weeks ago. I mean, I, as I understand it from the limited reports that I heard anyway, that kind of came without warning. I mean, it wasn't like we're standing out in their backyard watching this gap grow bigger and bigger and then said, oh, I think we're in trouble. Okay, the fissure was there, but they didn't notice it or it wasn't evident, and then it went. And sometimes splits in churches can come just that way, but if we're paying attention, we can see the seismic activity that may be under the surface. It happens when any member decides... There's two kinds of problems. First of all, it happens when any member decides that he has nothing to contribute to the other members of the local church. Verse 15, If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body it would not for that reason cease to be part of the, of, of the body. So what is the foot who says, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, saying? Basically, I don't have anything to contribute. And I've met people like that, and I'm sure you've met them too. Well, I just don't know if I have anything to give to the local body. I don't think I can, you know, I, I'm, I'm not very smart, I'm not very rich, I'm not very this, I'm not very that, and therefore I have... No real part in the body. I have nothing to contribute. You can never legitimately complain that you have nothing to contribute to the other members of the body because, again, verse 18, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. If you had nothing to offer to the local body, you wouldn't be there. God would not have put you there any more than for your foot to just decide, which it does sometimes. You know, you're sitting on these hard chairs, you're getting that pinched nerve back there, and so you wake up and your leg, you stand up and your leg's just dead, asleep. I have nothing to contribute to the body. And you say, well, you better, because that's what you're there for, right? Okay, so we can never claim that. Uh, and, uh, and, and yet that's oftentimes uh, a problem. Truth we're told... Um, if we're honest about it, we may be too lazy to contribute to the life of the body. We may be too selfish. You know, well, I want to be this, and since I can't be that, then I don't have anything to contribute. That's the, the foot saying, because I'm not a hand. But if that's the problem, that's a different problem, and it needs to be addressed in a different way. Or, here's the second way, it happens when a member decides that he or she does not need what the other members of the body are offering. I am a rock. I am an island, you see. I, I, I can make it on my own. Uh, and so I don't need anything. You know, call somebody up. And uh, they, they, they've had an injury. Or, um, we, we, we had a, a fellow who had some, some difficulty just recently in our congregation. You call him up. You need anything? Nope, don't need a thing. I'm okay. I'm fine. Need any food? Nope, don't need any food. Don't, you know, just, uh, and, and I'm sure that that particular person just didn't want to be a bother to anybody. But you see, when you don't want to be a bother to anybody, you're saying, I can make it on my own. It's very seductive because it sounds so self-sacrificing. I don't need anything. I don't want to put anybody out. I don't want to make trouble for anybody. But it's refusing then the opportunity for the rest of the body to do what they're trying to do as they seek to show concern for you. Now, you know, we can kill each other with kindness sometimes, and so you've got to be careful uh, uh, to overwhelm. But if the eye, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. 
That might arise from a haughty spiritual pride, which probably was the case among the Corinthians, which looked down on these weaker kind of members that were dispensable, they were less honorable, and so the super spiritual types in Corinth just said, you know, we really can get along without the drones in the congregation, so to speak. But again, God has combined the members of the body so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. When you refuse the ministry of your brothers and sisters, the other members of your local body, either by neglecting or by overt refusal, then you are rejecting the very ministry of Christ himself to you. You know, we don't often get the perspective. Remember when Jesus told in the parable about uh, the sheep and the goats, and he says to both sides, I was hungry, and you fed me, or you didn't feed me, I was thirsty. And, and they say, wait a minute, Lord, when, when was that? And then he says, so think about that in terms of your local congregation. Your brothers and sisters in your local church are carrying out Christ's ministry to you. And you are carrying out Christ's ministry to them. So when you say, I have nothing to contribute, in effect you're saying, the Lord Jesus has nothing to contribute. If you say, I don't need anything, then like Peter, you're saying to Jesus, no, Lord, I don't need my feet washed, I'm fine just the way I am. That's a serious matter, to turn our back upon the, very, the ministry of Christ himself. So next time, or in our next uh, hour, uh, we'll, we'll talk more about how this fellowship in ministry works out. But this is the model, this is the picture. God sovereignly mixing congregations and putting them down in a, local, a locality so that that particular group of people will be served and built up into that maturing unity in Christ by the mixture of people and gifts and particularly the attitude of heart service that should characterize each one of us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word and for the challenges that it, uh, that it brings. And we do confess that oftentimes we view the life in the local church simply on a human social level. Uh, we do not always um, perceive the, the spiritual realities that are uh, at work uh, in us and through us particularly as the Lord Jesus by his sovereign spirit works through the various members of the body so that all of us might be built up together. And Lord, we pray that you would forgive us when our own laziness or neglect or even ignorance causes us not to function the way we should and the body limps or limbs atrophy, ministries are not carried out. We pray, O oh God, that rather you would stir us up to that loving service which was characteristic of our Savior himself, and that all the parts of the body might receive all that they need because all contribute for the common good, because we are one body as you are one God working in our midst. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.